this man on an ocean liner and he's leaning over the ship's rail. He's tossing something out into the, uh, the ocean. But he would catch it as he would throw it up and then he'd catch it again. He kept doing that. The man came along and says, what are you tossing? He says, it's a diamond of great value. In fact, it's all that I own. It's all that I have in my life. And the man said, aren't you afraid of losing it as you toss it up down over the ocean? And uh, he said, no, I've been doing this for about a half an hour here. I've caught them every time. And uh, so he said, uh, you know, this is what I enjoy doing that. Uh, the man said to him, he said, well, you know, there might come a last time to that where you don't catch it. Sure enough, you know what happens on the very next toss? He goes up and he misses it. goes into the ocean into eternity. The man cried out as he stood aghast there, lost, lost, lost. And uh, we can say, well, what's that have to do with our message today? Well, the ocean is eternity. And the vessel, that ship, is the vessel of life. And the diamond is the soul. It's the greatest treasure that we have. But, you know, even though that story really was made up, it's not true. At the same time, it is a representation and an illustration of many people. Matter of fact, many, multitudes of people are there as they take great risk in playing with fact that there is eternity. And eternity as far as being with God would be lost. How can people be so careless with the most precious thing that we have, eternal destiny? How can they be that way? You know, they can uh, think the answer is people get so caught up with this life and what this life is about here on earth and the good things of life that they try to seek and satisfy themselves they get caught up in that Satan makes them focus he's always there tempting them anyway focusing upon the things that are not of eternal value and there are occasions where people will think briefly about death and the afterlife maybe but they figure this. Usually that's the case whenever someone has died. There's a funeral. Or there's something disastrous that has happened. And then, a few weeks later, they forget about it and they go on. And they, they figure this, you know, I'm an okay person. I haven't done things that are really, really bad. I'm okay. God would not send me to a place called hell. How could He do that? A loving God wouldn't do that. Guess what our subject is today? Heaven and hell. And we as Christians, me included, love to talk about heaven. And well, we should, shouldn't we? Because that is where eternity is about. That's where we're heading for. We love to talk about those things. However, we usually avoid talking about the other place. It's fearful. 
It's horrifying, isn't it? When you really see what Jesus says about it, did you know that Jesus actually talked more about hell than He did heaven? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Did you know that He talked more about hell than any of the prophets of the Old and New Testament, the apostles? They had very little to say about hell. But God left it to Jesus to talk about hell. Now, you know, I didn't necessarily choose this message that this would be this morning. It just happens to be where we're at as we go through the book of Luke. As we do expository teaching, verse by verse, word by word, phrase by phrase, whatever it takes to get the understanding of God's truth. You know, sometimes i got a feeling that we would wish that maybe Jesus would have never told this story that we're going to talk about this morning. Sometimes those thoughts can go through your minds. Surveys of Christians, evangelicals, non-evangelicals, people that wouldn't even be in the body of Christ, outside the church, surveys have been given, have been asked, do you believe that heaven exists? And overwhelmingly, most people answer yes. But, however, on the other hand, the same group of people were given the survey also had a question about hell. And they said that it didn't exist. The majority in that survey, and this was Christians, evangelicals, non-evangelicals, liberals, fundamentalists, vast majority said, when Jesus speaks of heaven, yes. He speaks of hell, no way. It doesn't really mean that a Bible-believing Christian has no option. If you really believe the Bible and you believe Jesus, then you have to believe what He says. It's not me, but it's what He is saying. We have to believe it. Why is it such a struggle for us to talk about this subject Well, I think one would be obvious. I think we would have a little bit of compassion for humankind. We wouldn't desire that anybody go to such a fearful, frightful, eternal place, would we? We wouldn't want to do that. We would, you know, I don't get happy for anyone that would be going to hell. I don't think anybody here would. We hesitate to talk about hell. Sometimes we have hardly a clue of God's holiness, His majesty, His righteousness. We are trying to learn about this holiness and this righteousness. He's a just God. And then our view of sin is really watered down. It's sugar-coated. Our knowledge of God is shallow at best. But we do sugarcoat our sin. It's not that bad. It doesn't really exist. But 
every Christian would say that they don't deserve heaven. A true Christian knows that we don't deserve it, do we? There's nothing that we have ever done, will ever do, to satisfy God's justice because of some goodness that we have. We know that. Hell is what we deserve. What if it was only for a year? It'd be horrible, wouldn't it? About a thousand years. Ooh, hard to imagine. How about a million years? You know, that's nothing compared to eternity. That's what this is involving. Now, this rich man that we're going to be talking about here this morning, we don't see any particular sin or anything that he's really guilty of. A particular gross sin, we don't see that. What we do see about him is that he's living for himself. He's living for his life only. That's what his life is about. He has no view to eternity whatsoever. Things are going great for him. He even had Abraham as his father. That means he was a Jew. The fathers of the faith. Abraham was the first Jew. The father of that, that race. And he was part of it. But that doesn't get him into heaven. As most of the Jews self-righteous ones especially, that's the way they thought. What the problem was is that this rich man neglected Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets or the Old Testament or the Bible. He neglected it. His faith was just a profession of faith. It was empty. It did not result in obedience to God, to the law, and to the prophets. So let's grab our Bibles and let's read this text that God has given us to read this, this day, some 2,000 years after it was spoken by Jesus. It had been written down by Luke. Seven, or 16 verse... 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things 
and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may come cross over from there to us. And he said, There I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, what a solemn text You have given us here this morning. It is serious. It's serious to all the world. It's to every man, woman, and child that needs to hear this message from Jesus. We're here this morning, Lord, and thank You for giving this to us. May we be able to glean from this the things that would glorify You and that we would see what Jesus speaks is absolute truth. It's all for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's go to our text in Luke 16, where we have been so far. In Luke 16, even in 15, Lord Jesus is speaking to the crowds, the disciples, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are not at all pleased what Jesus has been speaking. They grumbled against Jesus, you might remember as we spoke about it, because He received sinners. He received them and He ate with them. What are you doing hanging out with those sinners? Jesus, to illustrate that, told them three parables. You're familiar with those three parables. The parable of the shepherd who lost the sheep, went and found it, rejoiced over it, and everybody rejoiced. The parable of the lost coin. The woman goes and finds it. Just put huge effort in it to find that coin. And then the one that everybody's familiar with is the prodigal son. It's the lost son who comes back, who doesn't deserve what he got from his father, and that the father graced him, brought him back fully into the family. You know what? Pharisees could not rejoice in that. You know why? Because they hate grace. They like to work for their own salvation. They've had it made. And no way do they take somebody like this prodigal son who squandered everything from his father. What did he do? He came back. And the Pharisees are saying, no, no, he doesn't deserve that. 
But yet we have a Father that would take us sinners in who don't deserve it. So we see that we can be like the Pharisees. We can be that like that lost son. Right? So, quite the illustration made the Pharisees very mad because Jesus was making this out to be that there was a brother, the older brother, who didn't want to accept his brother back in. Why is he getting all this this treatment? Why is he having a feast for him? And that's the way the Pharisees were. They are the ones who killed Jesus along with our sin and the whole world killed Jesus. We all fall into that Pharisaic mode. So illustrates this problem again as we looked at last week or the week before there was another parable. The shrewd servant he used, he squandered the money that he was to manage for the rich man. You see an overarching theme in 15 and 16 about rich people that depend upon their wealth. It's not a sin to be rich, not a sin to have money. But what the problem is is that they loved money and so they were actually grumbling before they begin to scoff at him, make fun of him, jeer him. They hate Jesus. And he illustrates in 15 through 18 the root problem. They had the Word of God, they taught it, but yet they didn't live it. And they gave him the illustration of marriage and divorce. He said, You know, you're divorcing and divorcing and divor- you married. You divorce. You marry divorce. He said, you break your law. But you made a law that made it legal to do that. And matter of fact, it is okay. It's more than okay. It's alright if you want to do that. No problem. So they abused the law. But there's a unity running through here. It's about money. You have a rich man here. In today's story... If you look back in chapter 16, the first verse, now he was saying this to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. There's the unjust steward. So a rich man there. The Pharisees are the ones who are rich. They strove after money. They would go in and rob widows' houses of money as they would uh, take advantage of the situation. And so... Uh, the Pharisees are like the rich men that we see in these texts right here we've been dealing with. So it says in verse 19, now there was a rich man, just like in verse 1, there was a rich man who also was an unbeliever too. Pharisees showed their source of their sin, their love of money, but I'll tell you what, they liked even more. Key understanding this parable, and the parable that we looked at last week, it's in verse 15 of chapter 16. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves. They justify themselves. Only God can justify. Only God can declare you righteous. But they justified themselves in the sight of men. 
Because men saw them in the clothes that they wore and in the religion that they were involved with and people adored them. They thought highly of them. Pharisees loved that. And so we see what their heart was, where it was at. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. It's detestable to, to live for, to be judged by people. That's what Jesus speaks. Now we see here that this is a rich man and he habitually, always dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. This is what everybody would like to be like. This is what the Pharisees would be like and for the most part, this is them. They are the rich man. Anybody that's self-righteous is this and they love money. The love of money is the root of all evil, right? That's the problem. Well, this man has expensive garments. Would you say that he ate well? Absolutely. Did he live a happy life? Yes, he did. He had it made. Made in the shade. He's got it. Pharisees are going, yes. All right. This is, the, this is our guy right here. This is the guy. Well, it says that um, in Deuteronomy 28, turn back to the law just for a moment. Deuteronomy 28 is the blessing and the cursing. You have the, the two mountains, Ebal, Gerizim, and Deuteronomy 28, each one of those mountains is like, okay, what we have here is representing blessing, Cursing. Verse 1. Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. I'm talking obedience here. You can only gain that from what God grants you, but at the same time, He says you will be blessed if you obey the Word of God. Now, you see the cursing starting in verse 15. After reading 14 verses of blessings, blessed are you, as long as you are trusting in Him and obeying Him. Verse 15, it shifts gears. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. So you just go on and on. The cursing, the blessing. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you do not obey, you'll be cursed. Pharisees, what side do you think they are on? The blessing side. If you are a good person, God will bless you with abundance. Money, wealth, you'll have everything you need. You know what that's called? Prosperity gospel. It's been around since day one after sin. If you do this, this and it's like Deuteronomy 28, but Deuteronomy 28 is a basic principle. Yes, if you follow God's principles, He will bless you. He'll bless you in a lot of different ways. It may not always be the way that you think, 
But he's blessing us, isn't he, as Christians? Well, this is the Pharisee theology. This is the prosperity theology. This man, this rich man, has purple clothes. Got to touch on that just for a moment. Dressed in purple. Why is it that mentioned? Well, only the very wealthy, really, basically, kings wore purple. We've always heard of that, haven't we? Kings wear purple. Okay, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. God doesn't have any problem with purple. But the thing is, to get it back then was a problem. It took a lot of effort. It was like going after diamonds and jewels. You have to dig for it. Well, in this case, it was it, it came from shellfish. Uh, murex is what it was. It was a purple dye that was used uh, to give a lavish color to garments. And that would have been an amazing thing. But it was basically the wealthy that would have that. And in the book of Acts, there was a lady by the name of Lydia who sold purple. That's what she did. She had a pretty lucrative living probably by doing that. And also it says on this man is fine linen. This is the finest cotton coming from Egypt. The best cotton in all the world. The best clothing this rich man had. Pharisees are going, yes, yes, this is us. This is what we want. This man is dressed to the max. He's wealthy. He's on display as he wears his beautiful clothes. See, that prosperity gospel is really a biblical... uh, I guess you could say the Bible would object to that. You remember the book of Job? Now, he was a rich man, of course, but he had friends that came to him. And, you know... They were trying to show Job where he went wrong. And they said, well, you did this. You must have done this, so therefore God is judging you. You know, if you have something go wrong with your life, then it's automatically you have something in your life that's wrong. Well, that can be. That could be a general principle. But in the book of Job, that's not what that story is about. Job was a righteous man, actually. God used him for a lot of reasons, but basically it's about the glory of God. And look at the blessings that God gave to him afterwards. But, you know, you see the story of suffering and such. How about in John 9? You have the uh, blind man who who had been born that way. And uh, I think it's one of the disciples asked, Hey, uh, who sinned that this man is blind? Was it his parents or was it him? Why was he born blind? He must have done something wrong to be blind, right? And that's we're guilty of that sometimes, just because somebody's going through tough times. We think, oh, they probably they did something against God. They sinned, you know. We we tend to do that, but that's not for us to do that. That's what the Pharisees are thinking. That's natural thinking. They're saying, this is our guy. We love stories about money and wealth. And then we go into verse 2. And every time Jesus tells a parable, He says something that is actually against what they believe in. 
You know, it's like, oh, it just blows their minds and they get very angry because he's tearing their theology apart. Verse 20, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. So, we've got two characters in this story. That's what point one is. And we've, we've seen the rich man, and now we look at Lazarus, who is poor and helpless. By the way, this is not the same Lazarus who was later raised to life after he died. This is a different Lazarus because that's going to happen in the future. Jesus is talking about a parable and it's like it's in the past. Uh, So we see in uh, verse 20 a certain poor man is in a horrible situation and he has sores, he's covered, he's, he's poor. The word there is patokas. And there could have been another word for poor or in the situation that he was in. But this word is extreme. It means this guy had nothing. He is in extreme poverty. He has almost like no hope. He has sores. Now the word there for sores is helka. And it means in our English like ulcers. He had ulcers all over his skin. They're like lesions all over his body, oozing out. This is grotesque. It's absolute gross, filthy, dirty, and that's the way the Pharisees would look at a man like that. And there were people like that. And that's how the Pharisees treated them. He is a wretch. What chance does he have? Well, his name is what? Lazarus. Did you know what Lazarus means? It comes from the word Eliezer. Helped by God. This man is really helped by God. He was helpless. He couldn't do anything for himself. You know who that is? Us. We are Lazarus there. In that wicked condition. Sinful. A sinful looking condition. And in this sense right here, but God saves him. Okay, well, Everybody is sinful. That's the idea. This rich man, he's left unnamed. We don't have a name here in this parable. The poor beggar is named. God has helped. Because God helped him come to salvation. God gave him salvation. That's grace. That's mercy. That's love. That's what we identify with, isn't it? We count on that. Now, the next phrase here talks about the dogs. He was so hungry. He just If he could just have the crumbs that come off this rich man's table. He's not talking about having a steak or a little piece of that. Just some crumbs that he could have. And somebody, a friend or somebody that kind of felt sorry for him, took him to the gates of this rich man. Rich man could see this guy out there. Doesn't lift a finger for him. Doesn't do a thing. Doesn't even give him a crumb. And there come the dogs licking his sores. Already in absolute humility and then the dogs come. Just what you need. 
So what's so bad about dogs? I have dogs at home. I love my dogs. Most of you all have dogs, right? Most of you do. No problem. Back then, there was a problem with dogs. They weren't shampooed and had fluffy hair. And, and most of you probably have dogs that live in your house. You know, and they're clean dogs, and you love to take them and you know treat them like babies, you know, and just love on them and such. And those dogs were rich, wretched dogs. They were like dogs that would run in the streets of Jerusalem and wreak all sorts of havoc. Everybody hated dogs. Matter of fact, if you were called a dog, it was the worst name that you could ever be called. A dog. So they were like ravenous wolves, really, running around. One writer says that the pariah-like mongrels that roamed the outskirts to eat uh, garbage, and they were always in the search of garbage and turning over the trash cans and whatever it was. They were just nuisances. And there they come up to this man, start licking his sores. He's already having a hard enough time the way it is, his wounds. And so they're abusing him even further and probably even eating at his wounds and all the stuff that's coming out of his body. This is what's happening. This is really graphic here. You say, Dennis, why do you have to bring all this out? That's the thing when you do expository messages, you have to tell a little bit about the culture and the thinking and bring you back to where it was at that time. Otherwise, you're going to be thinking all those nice little house pets and they're coming up there making him feel good, you know, and trying to make him feel a little better. And, you know, you hear of stories where dogs actually come to people who've had heart attacks or they're hurt, and for some reason, dogs sense that. And, you know, they go get help, you know, and that, you know, amazing stories, but. This is what was happening then. And so dogs weren't the, that, you know, the fluffy little loving things. Mm-hmm. By the way, in our neighborhood, I never see those fluffy little loving things. We have, in our area, <laughs> big, I mean big dogs. I mean, they're huge dogs, and usually people don't have one. They'll be carrying two of them. And, you know, they're, they're pet lovers around our area, and people love to walk in our area. And I go, wow, that dog is bigger than them. You know, where do they get these? You know, it's like, I, don't even, I can't even recognize it. And then the very first uh, day when we moved into our house, or was getting ready to move, there was a, a Labradoodle that, you know, was really big, had all that fluff, a beautiful looking dog. You know, and yet, you know, came right up to the, the, the van door and picked in and said, Hi, how you doing? You know, and that's a, that's a beautiful dog, pretty dog, comes over our, uh, to us all the time and says, Hi, Libby, how you doing? You know, and uh, so Libby is really uh, uh, near dear to us, you know, a part of the neighborhood, you know. And so anyway, now you got the idea of that. Uh, he's unclean. What would the Pharisees think? Cursed by God. Look, at, And He didn't do a thing to deliver Him out of that situation. Now what's the law about treating the poor? Well, let's go back to Deuteronomy. We saw the blessings and cursings. So now we go to Deuteronomy 15. And remember, if you go to the Law and the Prophets, you're going to what Jesus had already said. You have the Law and the Prophets, but you don't obey them. And we get to the end of this uh text today and we see the same thing is that people are not really living the law and the prophets. They don't hear it. 
It's the, it's the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse, uh, pick it up, verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your, your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. Brother there is saying, you know, uh, humankind, Jewish brother there. But you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year. Anyway, moving on. Go to verse 11. Let's skip on down. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. That's a good principle, right? That's how we're to treat people. New Testament, same thing. Or love God and love your neighbor. Right? That's the two commandments. We don't see that, yet these people are proud that they teach the law, and yet they don't obey the same thing that they teach. So there's our first part, the two characters, the rich man, Lazarus. There's two destinies. Pretty simple here, isn't it? Verse 22, in Hades, this is the rich man, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So, two destinies. First of all, In verse 22, we see that the poor man was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now heaven is pictured in the parable in the common Jewish symbolism of a banquet. A messianic banquet. That's what people think of. You know, one day when we get to heaven, sitting at the Lord's table with all God's people, Celebrating with him. At a banquet in that culture, the guests reclined at the table and they would be gathered around a certain area and there would be like pads that they would kind of be halfway laying on and kind of sitting up at the same time and they're eating their food at the Last Supper. We'll see Jesus at the Passover. And they're doing the same thing. John, uh, the Apostle John, was there with Jesus at his breast, right? Okay, that, that's the idea because you would be laying up against somebody that is, is right here as they stretch out in that sense. That's the idea. This is like a, a banqueting feast leaning back upon the breast. Do you know what's happening there? Enjoyment, rest, comfort, fellowship, This is Lazarus in heaven enjoying comfort, rest, fellowship. He had none of those things before on earth, did he? But now he does. All the trials that he had known in this life, in this world, they're gone. Gone for eternity. And this symbolizes eternal rest and enjoyment. 
That's heaven, folks. Absolute joy. We're to have joy here too. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that is what this man, Lazarus, is doing. He's enjoying the presence of God and the saints. The father of the Jews, Abraham, is there. So there he is. It's the very presence there. You know, Abraham was a hero of the faith. And this is one of the people that would have been the poorest ever. And he is right there fellowshipping with Abraham. You'd say, well, he shouldn't deserve that. You know, maybe get in a little bit, you know, and be a janitor in heaven, but not, you know, be in fellowshipping with all the famous people. Changes, doesn't it, in heaven? First or last, and the last to first. That's a dead heat. We all win. It's heaven. It's beautiful. I'd love to spend a lot of time on it. Revelation 21, you get no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Heaven is going to be infinitely better than the best life that we could possibly have right here on this earth. That is what we're shooting for. That's what it's all about. And it's eternal. And we have just a few years here, really. What amounts? You know, can you imagine having something much better that we can't even describe it compared to the best times that we've ever had here on this fallen earth? Wow. You know what? This is a shocker. It's a shocker to the Pharisees as Jesus would say this parable. And He shocks them every time He does a parable. Every time He opens His mouth, He shocks them because they're waiting for something that they agree with and they know they're not going to get anything that they agree with. Because He's saying that here is a despicable, cursed man who's helpless and He made it to heaven. And He's right there with Abraham. Oh, Pharisees are gone. This is despicable. They're shocked that Jesus would say this. You remember the uh, prodigal son? They were shocked at the father come running to the son and accept him back into the family. Well, heaven. I would like to speak a lot on that. Got to move on. Going to try to get out of here a little bit earlier than we usually do because of our banquet that we're going to have. I actually only have one more page. I would normally have two right now. Well, let's just go to hell. Whoa. Okay. In Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. There's a place of eternal torment. Everlasting punishment, as it is stated in Matthew 25, by Jesus. I don't take great joy all right, the wrath of God. I love it. I don't take that kind of joy. But when Jesus speaks about things, we too have to believe it. And where it's proper, we have to speak about it too. So here it is. We have to be faithful to the text. 
Hades is what this word is. Hades, it's a place of torment. Sometimes cartoons will picture a hell, you know, where you have a wicked party going on throughout eternity. And you know what's going on there? People are having a party. They're having fun in Hades or hell. And at the same time, this cartoon will portray the righteous people that are in heaven are just sitting around being bored and playing what? Harps. Up in the clouds, and that's all they do. I wonder what I can do next. i got an eternity here, and I don't know what to do. Don't have to worry about that. Because whatever joy that you get here in life, things you like to do, will be multiplied eternally as far as enjoying the life that we have there compared to here. And there are things and activities that you do that you enjoy. Right? God is giving you those gifts and talents to do that you like to do. And so therefore, uh, we get just a, a little taste of what it's really going to be like for eternity, all the time, as we live there in joy. Um, you want to know what Mark Twain said about this? I'll take heaven for the climate. You ready for this? And hell for society. Because all these friends would be there. The only problem, when you look at today's text, you don't want your friends to be there. Because they will suffer just like you. It's not a party. I don't know how many times I've heard people saying, well, I'm glad I'm going to hell because at least my friends will be there. That's saying a lot. thing is, you won't have any friends there. You're, you're alone. You ever seen that show Alone? Well, that's scary. And that's like maybe a couple of months out there in the wilds trying to survive. This is alone for eternity. Mine. Jesus uses really awful word pictures here. It's not going to be a fun place. He says in Matthew 25.30, it's the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said that. He also said it in Mark 9.48, described hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It says in Mark 9.43, says it um, would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to go into the unquenchable fire. The flames of hell versus the golden streets of heaven. Which one do you want? Most people say this one. Here it is. There's two destinies. There's nothing in between. Nothing. The parable says, I'm in agony. I'm in agony in this flame. In verse 24. If it were a fun place, he would want his brothers to join him for the party. He's actually saying, go tell them. You know, to repent. They have to, you know, see somebody that arisen from the dead, and then they'll repent. That's that's. He doesn't want them there. He doesn't want them to have to go through the punishment that he's getting. R.C. Sproul says this. R.C. has a way with this kind of text here. It says the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not pleasant. 
But you cannot accept Jesus and reject hell. Because He taught it so plainly and frequently. R.C. went on to write, The fact is, however, that virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell, virtually every statement, comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. Does that, does that surprise you? kind of does me too. I'm thinking, I guess it is from Him, isn't it? We cannot take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what He said regarding eternal punishment. There is very little about hell in the Old Testament, very little in the epistles. It's almost as if God decided that a teaching this frightening would not be received from any lesser authority than that of His own Son. There's three popular views that humans have coming religiously of what to do with hell. Okay, it's in the Bible. And all this stuff is symbolism, they say. So, universalism. I like that. And that means everybody gets saved no matter what. No matter how bad, no matter how good you are, all are going to be saved. They're all going to go to heaven. And there's no such thing as hell whatsoever. I have to ask, did Jesus lie? You don't believe in Jesus, right? There's a second one. It's called annihilationism. Cults love this one. Because they know that the word hell is in there, but they say all it is is that when you die, and you're, and you're a sinner, you never trust in Christ, you don't go to hell or anywhere, you are annihilated. And that's it. Nirvana. Nothingness. That's it. That's a little more believable, isn't it? The cults, all the cults basically believe in annihilationism. Jehovah's Witnesses is known for that. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying here. We're not annihilated. If you lived here and they did everything you wanted and then you're annihilated, you never know anything about it, you're gone and that's it. And that's what most people choose to believe religiously or not religiously. If you're an atheist, this is it. This is the, the, the best that you have right here. It's all random. Everything that happens is just random, just loose things out there. It doesn't matter what you believe, what you say, what you do. You can do anything you want. Matter of fact, there are no principles, no guidelines really when you just all let it go. And there's a third one called purgatory, which is also a, a dastardly mistake done by the Roman Catholics. And they believe that uh, what happens is you go to this place, it's a holding place, and you are purged from your sins. And then that will finally be taken. How long is it? We don't know. It could be hundreds, thousands of years, millions of years. We don't know. But as long as people put money into the the coffer, then if, if your relatives and friends, they keep putting it in there, that means less years that you'll pay for in purgatory. What kind of theology is that? Is it in the script? Nowhere near it. Hebrews 9, 27, I'll get to that in just a second, says that you die once, then comes a judgment. There is no second chance or no current. What does the cross mean? Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. We can't ever pay for our sins because if we do, it'll take an eternity. That's why they're in hell for eternity. Because it'll take an eternity to pay for your sins, which means you can never pay for your sins. It's extreme that you can't even imagine. But if you're paid for it, you're paid for eternally. Now we go to the third part. This one goes rather quickly. It's two requests of the rich man. We're almost at the end. 
Okay, the rich man, he knows where he's at. He says, uh, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of your finger in water, cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. He has a request. First request is this. Have mercy on me. I've got a request. He knew that he needed mercy. He go, what is he, repenting? No. Sinners in hell will never repent. I'm in agony. You know what? How does he view Lazarus here? You ever thought about this? Like a slave. He says, won't you get him here and go fetch some water for me? By the way, you know he's not going to get much water. Just give me a single drop of water. Just anything. Relieve my agony, folks. This is eternity. And he wants this... Lazarus to serve him. There's no repentance here. So he gets an answer from Abraham. Abraham said, Child, he's a member of the, the Jewish race, and in that sense, you know, son, child. Remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things, but now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. What a reversal. There is no second chance. Hebrews 9.27, I just said it a while ago, and if you wanted to turn to that, you'll see what I am talking about. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment... He's talking about Christ offered Himself how many times? Once. He's not over and over sacrificed every day, every week. It was once that He was sacrificed. We die once, then comes a judgment. There's no room for purgatory. Yep, judgment. You see what He says about judgment. It's, it's not annihilationism. It's not universalism. It's what Jesus just spoke about. So, um, there's a great chasm. Before death, a person can move from spiritual death to eternal life. Before death. Once a person dies, his eternal destiny is fixed forever. There's no crossing over, is there? He can just... Cross over. You can't do that from one place to the other. There's a great chasm fix. I don't know how this looks, how it's set up. I can't tell you. All I know, there's a place there of enjoyment and rest and comfort. And there's a place also spoken about where the rich man is at in such punishment that is going on. So his request... You know, by the way, there are no atheists in hell. They believe... The problem is, is they believe too late. It's too late. They have their whole life to believe. The Gospel now has to be preached to his family and he knows that. Rich man needed, knew that his brothers needed to hear or see something, really, 
to do what He had not done, and that's repent and believe and trust. To be persuaded to believe. A repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul put it in Acts 20.21. Repentance and faith, they go together. So, he gets a second answer. A second request gets a second answer. There's a chasm fixed and such that we talk about. It's fixed forever. Can't cross over. Do you know what this rich man says? He objects here. He says, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. You know, he's already said that. And Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear the Word of God. Moses and the prophets. They have that. That's what they need. That is the power of the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power to salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Go all throughout the New Testament. Old Testament. The Word of God is what saves. You became born again because the Word of God that was planted into your souls. We are preaching the Word of God here. This is His words. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's the very Word of God. And as we look at this, we're amazed as this man is being told the only way that he can be, they can be born again is through the Word of God. And he objects to that. You know what he says? He said, no, Father Abraham, let me tell you something. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. How many times have the Pharisees seen amazing miracles by Jesus? And they attributed it to Satan. They kept denying it. Even a dead man will not a dead man that's raised will not persuade anybody. Do you remember there was a guy, another guy by the name of Lazarus. John chapter 11, I have to show you this, this is great. He is raised to life after three days of death. Jesus raised him back to life. Pick it up in verse 43, it says, Jesus said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! It was so loud that he came right out of death. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that he had done believed in him. So some did believe. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And they said, oh, let's become believers too. (laughs) Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. What did he just do? He had raised Lazarus to life. And they said, we've got to do something about this man who, who raises people back from the dead. We gotta do something about it. That dead man raised to life didn't convince them to and it you know, really that is one of the biggest, I think, the best statement that we can give people. Jesus rose from the dead. What do you think of that? I've heard that all my life. 
Have you really thought about that all your life? He rose from the dead, but people still deny that. The rich man just protests here, so that's not enough. They need something they can see, something spectacular, so they will repent. You know, the the Word of God, the Gospel, the, the Law and the Prophets, Abraham insists that Scripture is sufficient. And this is how we close here, back in our Luke 16. After the man says, he'll repent after they see Lazarus who's risen from the dead. That'll do it. Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, that's what, that's what it's all about, folks. That's why we're here today. Our singing, our praying, preaching, teaching, everything that goes on, the fellowship, what is it about? It's focused on this truth if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. They have all they need. You know what that is? That's a sufficiency of Scripture. It's all we really need for eternal life. They won't believe the Scripture. They won't believe if someone rises from the dead. They didn't believe Jesus whenever He was raised from the dead, did they? All sorts of cover-ups. You know, we can't live for selfish pleasure in this life and disobey God's Word and then expect, as those people that took the survey, to live with God forever as they deny Jesus and yet they are going to go to heaven because there's something good about them. But the good news is when you repent of your sins and you live on obedience, trust in Christ, you find great pleasure like this. Lazarus found pleasure in the abode of God. And it's for this time that we live in and eternity we can have great pleasure. No matter what our earthly circumstances are here today, we can rejoice because we know that Christ rose from the dead. He lives in us. And we have an eternity to spend with Him. And we can enjoy Him now. There's something better coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your truth, Your Word. It is precious. We rejoice in this truth. And it's great good news for believers. The ones who spurn Jesus do not trust His Word have a destiny of an eternal death that goes on and on and on. Torture and agony. Lord, thank You for Your truth for man would not have said anything about hell. Would not have had a hell that was made for the angels who sinned, the demons. Thank You. And as we go out of here today, Lord, we pray for a blessing on each one. A blessing that we have Your peace and a great opportunity to fellowship and show Your glory off in all the ways that You do and all the gifts and talents and abilities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.